This is Germinate. I'm Ananda, your host. In the last episode, we met with water designer Avery Ellis. I'd like to walk around your property, look at your downspouts. Yep. We'll talk about where that water goes now and where it could go. Okay. And then I'd like to look at your showers okay. and your washing machine. Watering things with gray water is not a problem. What you're saying is it's a gray area with gray water? There's a tree in upstate New York, the tree of 40 fruits. Really? 40 different color blooms, 40 different thyme blooms, plums, cherries, apricots, peaches, all in one tree. <laughs> I've been eating Frankenstein apples for years. I hope that I can help you today. Yes. To get some ideas. Okay. For how to plant the rain before you plant your plants. Great, so fantastic. So you are guaranteed success. So after two episodes and speaking to Avery and Steven, I've got lots of ideas to incorporate into my garden. If you've been following along on my Instagram feed or my Pinterest board at Germinate Podcast, you'll see some of the thoughts that I've been having. But as they say, it's time to put pen to paper. So let's begin. Steven sent me some homework to come up with two or three designs which synthesize some of the different elements that we discussed. Today, I'm heading over to Steven's house. Steven, as you remember, is the permaculture professor that we met in episode one. And we're going to look at those designs and put them together to come up with a final plan. The goal today is really to come up with a final design. Okay. And a design that we feel confident running with seems like you have some concept maps that we're going to be looking at, which is awesome. I'm glad you've done the work. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I mean, I think it demonstrates a number of things, but one, permaculture design is accessible. Anyone can do it. Two, you just have a much more intimate understanding of the land now, I think, and also what you want and what's possible in the land. So um, through this process, hopefully you've gained a lot of information. What are some of the things that we should be looking for as design elements for the final design? Like, are there, are there things that we're looking for as we go through some of these? Well, so, I mean, we're, we're looking for functional interconnection between the different design elements. The waste of one element can, will be, you know, uh, input for another element. Um, and when you have a whole lot of waste in your design, that's bad design. Right. And more um, work, presumably. Yeah, and more work, absolutely. I think there's a couple of features that you're going to see in all of my designs. And I think what I saw through the design process is that there were some elements that kept repeating or that felt like they had to be in that one spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and where things didn't feel that way, I tried to kind of put them in different spots and see how I felt about them being in those different spots. Mm-hmm. Cool. So this is design one. All right. Let's line that up. Um, One of the things that we talked about uh, going to the alleyway is on the other side of the fence having just some kind of fedge. Mm -hmm. So um, whether it's like choke berries, service berries, kind of mid-sized bushes Mm -hmm. that will effectively form a hedge, Mm -hmm. maybe a few flowers or what, just providing ground cover. So you may have noticed me use a particular gardening term there, a fedge, a hedge that is also providing food as part of a permaculture system. I think outside the permaculture space, it's also used to denote a living fence where you have a hedgerow uh, instead of a fence. And so it's a fedge. Definitely put in a couple of dry creek beds coming in from each of the downspouts from the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this design, I put all of the fruit trees um, to the far north of the yard at mm-hmm. the back so that it's kind of an orchard there and then the dry creeks and in the rain garden, which is in the um, northwest corner. 
So I, the thing that, that actually came to mind a lot as I was doing this is perspective and how I'm controlling the view, mm-hmm. as well as you know the things that we talked about around movements of wind and sun right. um, and what I want to grow. This is really cool. I like <laughs> it. Um, I like how the dry creek bend, the one on the southern end of the house, meanders through the landscape and meets up with the one on the northern side of the house. That's something that we haven't talked about, but I think that's awesome. A couple of the things that I actually added since the last time we spoke, mm-hmm. I went to a lunch and learn at work. One of my uh, senior colleagues actually collects bees, has bees, mm-hmm. um, and he has his whole like swarm catching equipment and yeah. was going through the process of collecting a swarm. And it just seems such a slam dunk to have bees mm-hmm. in the garden. So that, that got added. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the hoop house we had also slightly talked about, but I think that, you know, with all of the vagaries of climate, I think that it makes sense to have some kind of season extension or mm-hmm. ability to do that. A note about hoop houses. It's a less expensive form of greenhouse you can place directly onto the bare earth and move around if you need to. If you want to convert it to a permanent structure, you can to make it more like a greenhouse, include heating, cooling, etc. But its main benefit is that it's uh, less expensive than a greenhouse. How's our hoop house doing? I think your hoop house would be fine. You think your hoop house would be fine? Yeah, because definitely as we really start to experience the effects of climate change that we need to get serious about extending the season. How can we be resilient as humans in the face of you know, uncertainty uh, with the weather? And yeah, so um, awesome. This could be a full-blown food forest back here. And you can find... You just have orchard, not well, have annual production. Yeah, just have an orchard, but instead of annuals, you would have perennials that are adapted to shade and are adapted to a more food forest environment. Um, We're not disturbing the soil all the time. You have good fungal networks back there. On broad scale, in broad scale permaculture, broad scale, not horticultural, this is basically alley cropping, but you would create rows of trees. And then within these rows, there'd be space enough between them that you're like also growing annuals or perennials. Like I think that a sort of asymmetry or a more forest feel is kind of what you're after, you know? And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I so. don't know if that's come through in my designs, and I, I'll post these all on Instagram, but uh, yeah, I quite like the asymmetrical and the slightly wild. Mm-hmm. I think with careful design, we can get what we want. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we place a black locust here. We have annual production in the front here. In the backyard, on the very southern edge, right where the gate is, you know, that's like your zone one in your backyard. That's the place most visited. So maybe that's where we have the annual production. But then the rest of the yard could be more of like this sort of natural food forest with perennial bushes. With food forest, like you can start playing with stories. So all told, there's, you know, five to seven layers, depending on how you count it. Right. Uh, and in fact, there's like an entire two-volume textbook that was written by uh, Dave Jackie and Eric Tonsmeyer. Okay. And it's called Edible Forest Gardening. Yeah. But it's a really good resource. And so then, yeah, I actually really like this idea of having more of like a a food forest, you would obviously have the hoop house for starts and for consistency of crops during Mm -hmm. corner seasons. So that would be my early one, but then actually focus more of the traditional annual production Mm -hmm. in the front garden. Right. One thing I don't see on here, or maybe you've accounted for it, is your compost. Yes. So actually, I'm glad you brought that up. So I put the compost here. So yeah, so I've been playing with different locations for the compost. Speaking of compost, I can't believe that you haven't heard this story. Have you heard this story? 
I think it was when I was in London, we'd had a pretty robust composting program. The city came every week and collected our compost. And I expected moving to Denver being a place of outdoorsy with a greater awareness of the environment that they would have a composting program, but the city did not. The city had just at that time launched a pilot in some locations, but only for homeowners. Um, I was surprised that there was not a city composting program for apartment dwellers, which at the time I was one. And so I had been reading up about um, vermiculture, which is um, composting using red wriggler worms. And they eat through your food and they produce worm casings, which is a very rich source of of, uh, fertilizer to enrich the soil of my plants and at the same time reduce my food waste. Um, Win-win. But really from the get-go, it just never really worked properly. It was too dry, then it was too wet. I had too much food compost and not enough carbon. It was actually kind of funny because the worms would sometimes get out of the worm apartment complex. (laughs) Um, they were just, I would wake up in the morning and I'd find them on the floor. It's like they were going off to explore new lands and new civilizations and go where no worm had gone before. Um, but in the process died and shriveled up from dehydration because they're very sensitive. I started to get insect neighbors moving in and I had about three months where I just really fought, uh, all of this gnat infestation. I just had gnats and they were all by the window. And if you'd come to my apartment at the time, it was just lots of double-sided sticky tape on the window covered in gnats. Both these things are indicators that things are not right with the compost. I finally kicked the, the worms out um, and they went onto my um, balcony, the roasting balcony from the previous episode. Eventually, I put the worms in an outdoor compost and um, uh, effectively committed worm genocide because uh, they either dug in for the winter or they froze to death. Actually, a lot has changed in the Denver landscape since then. I um, About two years ago, there's a, a bicycle composting company called Scraps that started serving apartment buildings to try and encourage apartment dwellers to compost. Denver City's also expanded their composting program. So there's a lot more options now for um, Denver residents to compost their food scraps. So no excuses. This time, I've actually got people who know what they're doing helping me out. Let's get back to Stephen and our design process. So if you do compost right, if you have enough carbon, if you don't let it smell, as soon as it smells unlike soil or it starts attracting flies, is the minute you know that you're not doing your compost right. And nine times out of ten, it means that there's not enough carbon. Yeah. Always yield on the side of adding more carbon. Mm -hmm. But if you do it right, you won't have too many disease problems. But in fact, I mean, if you have your compost right next to your chicken or duck coop, they more or less function in the same way. Your chickens can compost a whole shit ton of food, right? Um, They, and that's one of their products is like, you know, is compost. Uh, That's what they do. What are some of the functional interconnections that we can draw between elements here? I mean, that's a really good question because um, in the book they talked about a pear tree. If actually they gave the example of a pear tree, and this is this is the permaculture guy's garden book that uh, Stephen recommended in episode one. But I've been doing my homework. But uh, there's a table in here, and I'm just um, pulling it up. Yes. Okay. It's like page 54 and 55 is pear trees connections, and one of the things here is the fruit. I will obviously try and harvest it, but some will fall on the floor. Mm-hmm. And it said, if not, we should consider an animal to clean up fallen fruit or neighbors or a charity to take the surplus. Yeah, the classic way to you know, create a, a functional interconnection, like at least on paper, is to do what in permaculture we call the needs and yields analysis. A needs and yields analysis is something that's fundamental in permaculture, as I'm learning. 
it essentially breaks down every plant into what are the needs that it requires. So carbon dioxide, sunlight, soil, and what are the yields or the products, fruit, bark, leaves, and then takes that and matches it up with other things in the system so that everything that is a product of one feeds into the needs of another. So a lot of these, like the functional interconnections that we're creating, are pretty straightforward if we're thinking in an ecological context. No one goes out to water a forest or fertilize a forest. It's, no. a, a, fairly, it's a self-sustaining system yeah. because the, the needs and the yields of the system itself are so intimately interconnected um, that it's able to self-sustain. And that's what we're after here in the backyard. It's a really cool the bees are right next to the hoop house. Uh, because, you know, if you wanted to grow plants in the hoop house, you're going to need some bees to come in and do some, you know, some pollinating for you. Bees need to pollinate. And when they pollinate, that's also a yield of honey. Um, But you keep it close to your hoop house and the entrance. This is, yeah, this is looking good. So as we're talking, are you getting, do you feel like some decisions have been made in your mind? As I said, I think that there are some design elements that have recurred through each of these designs, and I think Mm. that I'm pretty wedded to them. But I think some of the things that we've talked about have made me think a little bit more that the backyard can be focused as more of like a food forest, a little bit more wild, a little bit more self-sustaining. So yeah, so I think we could probably um, put a fresh piece down. Mm -hmm. And then, do you have um, one of those things that's a protractor? Well, and so one way to do this would be to start with... So Avery talked about scale of permanence. Yes. And you want to change the hardest to change aspects first. Yes. And I think that would be a good way with the design. And so the, one of the you know, highest level scales of permanence, the hardest to change in your design is going to be the land work with the dry creek bed and like the water placement. So yeah. maybe that's where we start first on this final design. Like yes. where do you want water? Well, so I'm going to say yes, and yes. <laughs> the way that I've drawn it in previously is to put the trees, and then I put the creek bed around the trees. Okay, cool. Nice. And so what Ananda is doing right now is really trying to find the right contour of the dry creek bed. And it's going to take a few times. <laughs> nice. What do you think? So think the, the, the goal of the contour is also to place the dry creek bed as close as possible to the trunks of the trees so they get the water that they need. Exactly. Okay. So rivers meander through flat land. Yeah. And in permaculture, we want to replicate natural patterns. So a meander isn't necessarily a bad thing. And it will distribute more water throughout your landscape, but like less amounts. Mm-hmm. Right? But if you have a more direct route, that means that you'll have more water down here, you know, which is a great resource because then you can plant more plants down here. I feel like we're moving to a final design. Okay. As soon as we get this done, let's do phasing documents. Okay, what does that look like? So a phasing document, you actually just write down everything that needs to be accomplished and the amount of time and or the amount of money that is required to complete each step. We want to change the most unchangeable aspect of the environment first. In phase one, that's what we're going to be doing. Simultaneously in phase one, we want to obtain a yield still this year. And it could just be, you know, salad greens. Um, But we're still going to obtain a yield this year. 
Yeah. <laughs> Stephen's like, we will obtain a yield. And so, you know, establishment of at least a few of the annual beds is going to be in phase one. Okay. And then phase one is going to be uh, basically from now until the end of the year in December. You know, phase two will be the spring. Phase three will be the summer. But as soon as, like, we get this final design, we're going to contact Avery. We'll schedule a time with him. And the next month or two, we're going to be digging dry creek beds in your yard. Okay. We're going to be establishing the pass. We're going to build the annual garden. We're going to be planting in it. And so once we have all the elements in place in the landscape, we will look at each of those elements and then place them accordingly into our phasing documents. Okay. So I'll help you out with that. And as soon as we're done with that, we'll call Ivy, we'll schedule a time, we'll get a team down here, we'll have, we'd have a permaculture work day or like a permaculture party. Permaculture party, um, great. Yeah, you know, maybe you uh, buy some beer, provide some food, and yeah. we have 15 people working in a yard. We're so close to the final design. I'm excited to work with Steven and Avery over the next few weeks to hash out the details of our implementation. Um, and I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has liked and commented on our Instagram feed at Germinate Podcast and on our Twitter feed at Germinate Pod. And I'll also be including any of the links to content we mentioned today on the show notes on our website at germinatepodcast.org. From all of us here at Germinate, happy gardening. Happy gardening.